God is good all the time. Welcome to Going Deeper. Welcome to everybody that joins us online and our CM campus. I want to, you guys know I'm going to be leaving for vacation immediately after this service. I'll be gone for the month of June, but I want to tell you what's going to be happening while I'm gone. And the bottom line is lots of great stuff. Going deeper, we're going to do a series called Crosswalk. And it's taking the cross and looking at key Christian disciplines. And we have a guest speaker uh, every single night to talk about one of the disciplines. We're going to look at worship, and we've got Josh Gillum, who normally leads us, will be leading us in the Bible study on worship. We've got generosity. Our own Reverend Carmen is going to be leading us in generosity and giving. We've got Kevin Siddle, who's going to be talking to us about study. And then we, yeah, praise God. And then I wanted to do witness, but you kind of already have heard me talk about witnessing once or twice. And so my friend Ashley Cooper is going to be here from England. I said, Ash, you come and talk about witnessing. So we've got an incredible lineup. We're really excited about the Crosswalk series. Reverend Mike will be taking Sunday mornings. He's doing a piece called Superheroes of the Bible. And it's really exciting. And right smack dab in the middle of it, Ashley will be preaching and he will be taking on one of those superheroes of the Bible. We've got some great stuff coming up. I will be back the first Wednesday in July. We're going to finish up Philippians. We only have a chapter and a half to go. Couldn't take more than six months. And... <laughs> We're going to finish up Philippians, but when I get back, we have a 500 emphasis on Wednesday nights. We're going to put some new speakers out beyond this chapel so that those of you that worship with us out in the cafe can really hear some quality sound. We're going to set seating up, and we're going to treat this entire area as though it's one place of worship then we're going to give you specific invites to Wednesday night. So you're going to get cards, things to hand out, and we're going to have you specifically invite your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, the people you go to school with to join you on Wednesday night. So we're going to have an emphasis. Uh, my prayer is that uh, we're going to grow this service by 100 people. And I think that is very realistic. And I do believe that in a manic world, manic prone to mania, in a manic world, I believe a midweek service of unplugged worship and verse by verse word is going to find an audience. I just do. And so every Wednesday, I feel like a cell phone that's running low on battery. And when I come here, I just feel like I'm sticking. Uh, that battery charger around me. And, and I just feel the Holy Spirit. And I hope that when you worship, you, you just can feel the Holy Spirit. I, I believe when we worship, that the Holy Spirit heals us, restores us, renews us, revives us. I just want to open up our hearts. And then I want to empty out the things that aren't like Jesus. And then as we look at the word, be filled with the things that are like Jesus. Jesus. So let's get at this Philippians 3. I'll be beginning with verse 12. It's shocking how little I'll get beyond that. First time I ever shot sporting clays was at a fundraiser for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes 
a few years back. And just for the record, I really like Fellowship of Christian Athletes. The general idea is that there's pairs of clay pigeons, but they're really like clay discs flying about from various and sundry angles and locations. And you try to hit them with birdshot fired from a shotgun. There's no doubt as to whether or not you hit one or missed it. Because even if you just nick it, it kind of... But if you hit it right in the middle, I mean, it's just... It's just sort of this glorious thing when you hit a clay pigeon. For me, the first time I went out, it it went better than I expected. I, I don't shoot guns much, but I hit 41 of 100. I was feeling pretty good about it. Because I'm one of those guys that doesn't get disappointed when I play sports that I don't practice and I've never played much. I have no expectations that I'm going to be successful. None. I have no reason. It's like all the people that have never played golf before and they go out and they play golf and it's just terrible and they break their clubs and they throw a fit. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Captain Stupid, if you really thought about this, You have not had any lessons, you've not played, you've not practiced, and golf is really hard. It's a real, it presents real physics problems when you play. And there's no reason to think you're going to do well. So why would you get frustrated? So that's kind of how I was with sporting clays. I thought, worst case scenario, I'll miss 99, and I'm going to put the last one on the ground and just shoot it at point blank range to say I got one. So that was kind of my strategy. Well, I got 41 out of 100. I went back the next year, and I got 39 out of 100. And I feel deep in my heart, if I ever go back again, I'll get 37, and we're trending down. Though I'm not great at it, I actually enjoyed shooting sporting clays. And one of the things I like about it is just how simple it is to keep score. It's really simple. If you hit the target, they put an X on the sheet, And if you miss, they put an O. And then you shoot 100 times, and guess what you do? Drum roll, please. You count up your X's, and that's your score. Simple. I like that a lot. When I shot, clearly I missed more than I hit. I missed clays high. I missed clays low. I missed by shooting too far out in front. I missed by shooting behind. But what I really like about sport is at the end of the day, None of that really matters. You either get it done or you don't. There's something incredibly honest about it. You either hit the target or you don't. Life is like that. Paul consistently argued that sin is what separates us from God and that Jesus came to forgive humanity of sin. Jesus came to give us an opportunity to be forgiven. The literal definition of sin comes from a Greek word, haumartia, and it means to shoot at a target and miss. Something I did a lot at the sporting clay shoot. In the purest of all definition, the task of every Christian is to become everything God created us to be, right? I mean, I think it's the purest definition. What does God want out of you? To become everything God created you to be. Uh, To do that, we're going to have to get the sin out so that we can get the Holy Spirit in. There's a lot of ways to miss a sporting clay. There's only one way to hit a sporting clay. As with any Roman colony, 
the eclectic inhabitants of Philippi came from many cultures and many regions. The Philippian church primarily consisted of a few Jewish-leaning Gentiles and a lot of former Gentile straight-up pagans. Jewish religion was formality based on morality. Pagan religion was formality based on immorality. Ironically, both systems were designed to produce productive people. The former by keeping it all in and the latter by letting it all out. If the Jews practice sacred repression, the pagans practice cultic expression. For example, the Jews finance the spiritual and benevolent work of the temple through tithes and offerings. That's how the Jews funded the work of God. Mainline Protestants later went to bake sales, found it didn't work, went back to tithes and offerings. This approach, which Christians share today, really depended on obedience to Scripture, generosity, a, a deep sense that we are blessed so that we might be a blessing. It was based on the biblical tithe. The word tithe literally means 10%. 10% of one's income was given to the Lord, the first 10%. Offerings were given on top of that. This may interest you and probably won't, but I'm a nerd, so what can I say? It is technically impossible to give an offering if you've not yet tithed. So the first 10% was the tithe. The offerings always came on top of a tithe. If you've not tithed, it's kind of impossible to give an offering. Now, the pagans financed the work of their temples through the selling of idols and sacred prostitution. Uh, theirs was sort of a goods and services delivered industry, which sort of harnessed the work of flesh and turned it into a capitalistic business model. Paul's message to the Jewish leaners was don't slip back into the entanglements of legalistic religion because it'll kill you. His message to the former pagan is don't slip back into the entanglements of wanton immorality because it'll kill you even faster. One misses high, one misses low, but they both missed the mark. To this point, Paul has explored how we can miss God's intention for our lives by shooting high. He proclaimed himself to be the most religious of the religious, the, the most pedigreed of the pedigreed, the most educated of the educated, and determined that all of that came to somewhere between nothing and not much. So what Paul's going to do now is express how we can miss God's bullseye by shooting low. Verse 12, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ first possessed me. Isn't that an interesting thought? Christ possessed me. Christ possessed me. The first and greatest hurdle we have to clear in this passage is to deal with the word perfect because it's problematic. The Greek word is teleos. It's almost always translated perfect, but it doesn't mean in Greek what it means in English. Encarted Dictionary offers this definition of perfect. Without error, errors, flaws, or faults. Let's take a perfect diamond. It's a diamond without errors, faults, or flaws. We are not that. Can I hear an amen from somebody? We're not that. We're not that. 
those expecting that from the church are always going to be disappointed because we are not that. We're not even close. The Greek understanding of perfect is really quite different than the English definition. For the Greeks, perfection meant two things. First of all, it meant fully mature. So a perfect fledgling is an adult bird. The perfect child is an adult. So it's, it's mature. The second definition is that something fulfills the purpose for which it was created. So let's imagine I have a coffee mug. And I've dropped the coffee mug a few times. It's a little chipped up. It's a little beat up. But at the end of the day, it doesn't cut my mouth when I sip coffee and it doesn't leak. It would still be perfect in the Greek definition of the word. It still fulfills the purpose for which it was created. I want you to imagine that your child or grandchild asks you for a new ball glove. As I recall, ball gloves cost $12.99 in 1972. I feel like they might be more expensive now. I want you to imagine that their present ball glove has some wear and tear and it's showing some age, but it is 100% functional. Your child or grandchild asked you for that glove and what you're thinking deep in your heart is, Junior, whatever your problems are in baseball, I don't feel like it's equipment. That's kind of what you're saying deep in your heart, but you don't really say that. But if you respond in this way, if you say you're not gonna get a ball glove. You're not going to get a new glove because the one you have is perfectly fine. That is Greek perfection. It is perfectly fine. Is it perfect? No, but it's perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. Not flawless, functional. Paul also believed that as Christians grow in Christian perfection, as we become more functional and useful to God, that we should be showing some overall improvement as time goes on. So I want to suggest to you that if we're growing in Christ, we should also be growing as human beings. We should also become more reflecting of the fruit of the Spirit. So he says, as you grow in Christ, there should be some perfecting going on in your life. Some time ago, I saw a placard that I loved. I just loved it. I usually hate pithy placards. You know, I, I just don't like them, but I like this one. It said, I can't wait until tomorrow because I get better looking every day. I liked that a lot. This is kind of like that. Paul's saying, Christians, if you're following Christ, you ought to be excited about tomorrow because every day you are more resembling the character of Jesus Christ. You need to be excited about this journey because you're gonna be more godly tomorrow than you are today. There is progress with this thing. It's, it's kind of like that, a bold declaration. I may not be everything I'm gonna be, but I'm certainly not what I used to be, and I am headed the right direction. Glory be to God. This is that. Christian perfection is more about being headed in the right direction as opposed to verifying your arrival at an ultimate destination. Let me tell you when we will have our ultimate destination verified, when we are dead. When we pass from this life, when we stand before God, and when we spend eternity with God. And I don't know what your strategy is when you stand before God one day. I got a real clear strategy. 
Uh, first of all, if any of you would like to borrow my seminary degree or anything of the sort to help you out, you're welcome to it because I will not need it. I'm real clear about where I stand. I am a sinner saved by grace. I am saved through faith in Jesus Christ and by the blood of Jesus, my sin has been washed away. I've invited Jesus into my life and because God loves me and has a grip on me, I have every intention to spend an eternity with God. It's not any accomplishment I have ever done or will ever do. God is not impressed by your resume, and I guarantee you he's not impressed by mine. What God is impressed by is the work that Jesus Christ did on a cross at Calvary. Salvation is not a prize to be earned. It is a gift to be received. Verse 13 and 14. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Jesus Christ is calling us. Paul writes from prison, and I think one could well argue that Paul is incarcerated primarily due to his own tactical error. His insistence on continually playing the Roman citizen card and appealing to Caesar undoubtedly had him still incarcerated when he would have been released had he not played that card. Yet Paul is not one to second-guess himself. Is there anybody here that really doesn't spend a lot of time second-guessing yourself? Yeah, I, I, I don't spend a ton of time second-guessing myself. I try to make the best decisions I can with the information I have, and uh, I just kind of move on. I, I just don't I don't second-guess myself a great deal. I'm very serious about decisions, but once you make them, you just move on. Paul is really like that. He doesn't sit in prison and think, gosh, I shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. He's not thinking that. He's not thinking that at all. He's also not blaming anybody else for his situation. He is choosing to look forward. His default seems to be, where I'm not where I want to be, but how can Jesus be glorified where I am? And maybe you're in a situation like that tonight as well. You're in a bad place. You're not where you want to be. But the question is, how can Jesus be glorified where you are? And you may find that Jesus can be glorified in the situation you're in in very, very powerful ways. There's a piece of me that thinks our greatest witness should be offered when everything's moving up and to the right. And our witness then is kind of like, you know, my life's going great, and if you just knew Jesus, your life could be great too. And deep in your heart, what you're saying is, boy, would you be happier if you were more like me? No one can relate to that. Nobody. But when you are going through a tough time and all hell is breaking loose and everybody knows it and you're still standing front and center for Jesus and you're looking forward to the great future God has before you, there is a powerful witness to be made there. And that is what Paul is doing. He just doesn't have time to live in the if only. How many people today live in the if only? If only that relationship had worked out. If only I hadn't gotten sick. If only I had invested then. If only I could have been stronger. If only I had done this. If only I had done that. Paul refuses to live there. He didn't have the time for that because he's marching toward an ultimate prize. In the ancient games, awards 
ceremonies were a really big deal. Athletes represented not only themselves, but their families and, and their regions and their countries. A victory for one athlete was really a shared victory for everyone. I'm always kind of amazed when people refer to the St. Louis Cardinals as we. Right? I mean, I'm kind of amazed by that. Not quite as amazed as when, like, adult men wear jerseys with the names of other adult men on them. That, that's disturbing to me. But, but this is a little bit different. This is a little bit different. They, they, you know, we, the Cardinals. And I'm sitting there thinking, they don't work for the Cardinals. They are not cor- former Cardinals, nor are they current players for the Cardinals. But they, the Cardinals are we. We. They radically identify with the team. I, I've seen people who have never worked or played for the Cardinals tattoo a Cardinal logo on their epidermis. They have no formal connection, but they radically identify with the Cardinals. The team is is a part of who they are. When the Cardinals win a World Series, which, you know, I feel like we're due to anybody else. And I I feel like we're due on one hand, and it doesn't look good for this year on the other hand. Do you ever get those feelings? But when they do win a World Series, man, everybody celebrates. We won. Not they won. We won. There's radical identification. The ancients were the same way. If if an athlete in the Olympics from your province won a race, everybody celebrated that. You didn't just represent yourself. You represented others as well. When somebody won a race... And the award ceremony came around. The winner would be summoned. The victory would be hailed by all who identified with the victor. And then the ultimate prize would be reward, would be awarded. It's, not, it's funny, if you go back in history, now you get gold medals, right? I mean, that's kind of cool, right? They're made of gold and all. But in, in a lot of the games, uh, they put crowns of dried celery on people's head. True. Crowns of dried celery, you know? I, I think that's where the saying comes from. Man, that guy smells like victory because they smell like celery. I, I feel like that has to be where it comes from. So, so there, there is a prize that is offered to an athlete, but the victory is shared. I never won anything like an Olympics but I did win our regional in the high hurdles when I was in high school. And it really is just like the Olympics if Athens had a Dairy Queen. <laughs> I very well remember the feeling of standing on top of that podium in the biggest race of my life in front of a few hundred fans, at least 80 of which were sober, and receiving the first place medal. In that moment, when I received the medal, all the blood, sweat, tears of the past few years of training and practice was all suddenly redeemed. I had worked toward a prize. I had won it, and that victory was shared by my teammates, my my family, my school, and in a sense, my town. And in that moment, there was no past. There was nothing behind me at all. 
lying in front of me was a suddenly energized future. I had won the prize for which I had been training. And the second they presented it to me, there was no more past. There was only a future and a hope. And that's how it was for Paul. He is sitting in prison, and he knows that he will receive an ultimate prize. There was a song that came out a long time ago. It said, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about. You see, Paul knew you can't live forward looking backward. I believe the forgiving work of Jesus on the cross and the victory of his resurrection frees us to live our best lives forward. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be defined by the worst mistake we've ever made. The good news of the gospel is we are not limited by the failures of yesterday. The good news of the gospel is we don't have to live our lives looking back because we have a future and a hope. Why? Why do we not have to look back? Because there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus. There is restoration in the name of Jesus. There is redemption in the name of Jesus. Jesus. First John 1 John 1.9. I love it. It's one of the first verses I ever memorized in exchange for peanut butter cups as a child. And, and it went exactly like this. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know what this says? If we confess our sin, God will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will remove your past, give you the ultimate gift of salvation, and you'll have nothing but a future in front of you. Boom. So how do we deal with past mistakes, right? How do we deal with those things? Let me give you six thoughts on that. First of all, just, just admit your mistake. I often joke that there's nothing I enjoy less than when Melissa accuses me of something that I've done right? I hate that. Uh, my, my classic is we were going to have company once, and I said, honey, is there anything I could do? And she said, yes. And I'm thinking, I thought that was rhetorical. Uh, and so she said, would you go dust in the dining room? This is when we lived in our other house. When you're in a cabin, you don't really have a dining room unless that counts as where the dogs are. So anyway, uh, I, I said, sure. So I went in there, and, and I kind of had a dust thing and, and a squirty thing. So I kind of shot a little squirty in the air, hoping it would properly diffuse, took the dust, threw it around a bit. And then I sat down for about 10 minutes to kind of gauge the time it should have taken had I taken the job seriously. And then after I was done at the 10 minutes, I said, honey, I'm all done. You will not believe what she had the nerve to say. I'm so sad that she's here because I, I'm sorry it embarrasses her. <laughs> she said to me, and I quote, did you really dust everything in that room or did you just squirt the spray wipe the wiper around and sit for 10 minutes oh that made me mad <laughs> just lit me up we got to admit our mistake or there's not a thing God could do with us I feel like one of the best ways to start church would be like they start 12 step programs if we just all walked into church and said hi I'm Shane, and I'm a sinner. 
and then y'all could say hi Shane and then be your turn I feel like that would be a great place to start let's just admit our mistakes it's going to solve so many problems number two make no excuses you, you can live as a victim your whole life you can make excuses for everything and everything you've ever failed in can be somebody else's fault it will get you nowhere nowhere and make no excuses I am a sinner I make no excuses for my sin and God's starting to get excited when we start talking like that God's starting to get excited when we talk like that then ask God to forgive you you say why would God do that because that's why he sent Jesus that's why he sent Jesus now so you can get all these little Jesus sayings to hang on your wall or Jesus bracelets he came to forgive our sin that's why he came to do ask God to forgive you number four forgive yourself forgive yourself there's nothing Satan takes more delight in than Christians who beat themselves up every day over sin that God has long forgotten forgive yourself number five make restitution where you can can you always make things right no but you know what sometimes you can you stole some money give it back so I spent most of it give back what you still have I mean do what you can uh, make restitution if you can did you hurt somebody tell them you're sorry you say they won't forgive me tell them you're sorry then it's up to them what they do with that well I've told I've, I, I've tried to get a hold of them a thousand times to tell them I'm sorry and they still won't forgive me you're a stalker stop it make restitution if you can if you can't then get to number six just move on just move on that's all you can do put the past behind you and move on if you feel you've made too many mistakes in your life to be loved by God or to be used by God it says more about what you think of God than it does what you think of you can I just be real frank with you? It seems to be a strength of mine. Who are you to say you're not worth loving if God says you're worth the life of my son? Who are you to say you're unredeemable if God said I sent my son to forgive you of your sin? Who, who are you to say I am permanently broken if God says I can make you whole the book of Job is the story of a righteous man who lost everything and as he's questioning God God offers this incredible response in chapter 38 it's one of my very favorite in the whole Bible where were you where were you when I made the stars Job shut if I say you're beautiful, you're beautiful. If I say you're forgiven, you're forgiven. If I say you're valuable, you're valuable. Who cares about your opinion when God has God's opinion? God loves you. God wants to forgive you. God wants to restore you. And no offense, but who are you? Who are you to say any different if God has said you're beautiful? and you're loved stop listening to that devilish voice in your ear that always always speaks 
death to you. It is perfectly okay to be rude to the devil. Can I just hear an amen from somebody? It's perfectly okay. Tell the devil to shut his stinking mouth and go to hell where he belongs. That's perfectly okay. One of my grandsons, when they were little, said, Papa said hell in church. I said, where else would you want to say it, kid? (laughs) If God says you're of incredible value, you're of incredible value, we got to choose to believe God and not the lies that Satan speaks to us. The Greeks were sports crazy, absolutely sports crazy. The Olympics were held every four years in Athens. The Isthmian Games were held every two years in Corinth. It was all held in honor of the gods. The providence of Macedonia containing Philippi would have had their own regional athletes who would have competed. They would have had a a system for determining who represented them in, in the games. The winners of these athletic contests were heroes. They were considered perfect human specimens. Young men would work out in the gymnasium and dream of winning a big race or throwing a javelin further than someone else. Like kids today might dream of scoring the winning basket in the NBA finals or catching a winning touchdown pass in the Super Bowl. For Paul, winning the race and receiving the prize is embracing God's salvation in all of its fullness. It's about choosing to believe the voice of God and rejecting the devilish voices that are always in our ears. Death, my friends, is not the end. It's only the beginning. As Paul writes from a Roman prison, awaiting capital trial, he rejoices that he can now see the finish line and he knows he has run well. So despite the uncertainty swirling about him, he will keep sharing the good news. He'll hold steady in a time of trial, and he will keep pressing on. Paul is in the grip of God. And when you're in the grip of God, fear has no hold on you. He advises the Philippians and all of us who will one day read this letter to do the same to be reminded daily that when we live in the grip of God, fear has no hold on us. Paul is prepared to die in Christ precisely because he's lived in Christ. Eternity is now firmly in his sights. There's only glory in front of him and there's absolutely nothing behind them. I pray that you will continue to grow in Christian perfection. We're never gonna be sinless, but we can certainly sin less. Celebrate what God's done in your life. When you see those situations where you know you responded better, can I use a Southern Illinois word than you used to would (laughs) have? Celebrate it. Celebrate it. Be cognizant, be aware that God is moving in your life. Be attuned to the presence of God. When you hear those thoughts that turn into fear and into anxiety and threaten to cripple you, realize who's speaking those words. Those are the words of the one that comes to steal and kill 
and destroy. But Jesus said in John 10, 10, but I've come that you might have life and have life abundantly. Many years ago, we were at the New Orleans Mardi Gras and we were in a Baptist church, I believe on Elysian Fields. And the Baptist church was really old and, and nobody had put a lot of work in, into it in recent years. And we were, the sanctuary was on the second floor and there was a basement underneath and it was a wooden floor and there were about 300 men, uh, many of whom had been hungry for years. And so you, you've got 300 men kind of jumping up and down and the floor sort of felt like a trampoline. It, it was just up and down. It was sort of fun, actually. <laughs> and, and so everybody's kind of worshiping, bouncing about. It's like God's dribbling everybody, right? And so, so it was kind of cool, but I, I never will forget the song. That, that the people in the church were singing. Whose report are you going to believe? Whose report are you going to believe? And the refrain was, we will believe the report of the Lord. Believe the report of the Lord. And I'll see you in July.